Hello and welcome to SearchCast, a podcast hosted by Isaacson Miller. My name is Rhett Sosby and I'm a people and culture specialist here at the firm and a producer of this podcast. Today, our hosts are Dan Rodas, who is a partner and leader of the firm's finance and administration practice, and Liz Vago, a managing associate who has co-led many of these searches. Our guest today is Don Rhodes. Don has more than 35 years of experience in finance and operations, 27 of them in higher education. She currently serves as the Chief Business and Finance Officer and Vice President of Administration and Finance at the University of Maryland, Baltimore. UMB is Maryland's public health, law, and human services university dedicated to excellence in education, research, clinical care, and public service. In her role, she oversees UMB's $1.3 billion budget. Thank you all for taking the time to chat today, and without further ado, I'm going to hand it over to Dan and Liz. Thank you, Rhett. Don, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, First, how are you doing? Uh, How's your family? How is the UMB community? Everybody is healthy and safe uh, and well, and I'm very pleased to be here to have this conversation with both you and Liz, and UMB is doing great. We're resilient, so we're managing our way through this pandemic. Great. That's, that's, That's just wonderful to hear. So, you know, perhaps by way of introduction, you could just take a few minutes and Tell us a little more about your pathway to becoming a university business officer. I'm sure you two have heard the phrase accidental profession. (laughs) And that's kind of what happened with me when I was younger. I was going to be a corporate lawyer. Uh, There was no consideration of being a higher education professional. And it literally, when I was, and I had all, when I graduated from college, I had all private sector experience and just happened to have someone that worked at my church talk about an opening at the University of Toledo for their inaugural budget manager position. And while I was interested, I was happy where I was. Um, My brother was interested in the position also. And my mom just pulled me aside and quite frankly said, if you're interested, you should go for it uh, because between the two of you, you would probably get it. And I went for it and the rest is history. I did get it and I fell in love with higher education and could never see myself in any other industry or field. Can you talk a little bit more about how you evolved from being a a university budget manager to being uh, in the top role of university business officer? Well, interestingly enough, I'm a nosy individual And being the budget manager, you get to know pretty much everything about the institution because it all boils down to the money, oftentimes at the end of the day. And so I got to know a lot about the workings of the university as the budget manager. And so I rose through the ranks um, to assistant and associate vice president positions at the University of Toledo. Um, I was there for about six years and I struck out to apply for vice presidency at and got the position at Savannah State University. I was in my early 30s and I absolutely loved it. It was baptismal by fire, a small institution, maybe 2,000 students, 
22 or $24 million budget. Um, but I also was a mother with four young children. Commitments that had been made to my husband as a trailing spouse were never met. And so we just decided we were coming back to, to, to Toledo. Our house never sold. Our telephone number didn't change. My husband's job was still open. My, my job was still open. And so we transitioned back after a little bit less than two years. And so I then spent another eight years at the University of Toledo, again, continuing to rise from a VP to vice presidential positions. And I sought a position at IUPUI, part of Indiana University's, one of their core campuses, and moved there as vice chancellor for finance and administration. I was there for about seven years and then transitioned to UMB in 2016, I believe it was. Yes, 2016. And I've been loving UMB ever since. Thanks. It's a wonderful institution, and I know they're happy to have you as well. Don, one thing, um, you've been a business officer, and thank you for sharing your background for a number of years. Um, Could you talk a bit about how the role has changed and evolved over time? The breadth of what we have to know has increased substantially, and I also believe the depth of what we have to know. So it's not just about the finances of the university. You have to understand what's going on in the schools or colleges, because truly, and my philosophy is that finance and administration is a service unit as well as a leader. Service can only be delivered if we understand what our customers' needs are, what their business is, how does their accreditation process work, when are their hiring processes, what are their challenges, economic challenges as they go through different cycles. And so you really have to learn so much more than we used to about our customers' business. And... um, Student affairs, interacting with the students, especially with so many of the units that directly impact students being part of auxiliary services, which is typically in the vice president's portfolio. You have to understand what the trends are and what students want on campuses. So, yes, it definitely has become a broader job and deeper knowledge is required. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Don, we've had the pleasure of working with you in the University of Maryland, Baltimore for the past few years. Uh, what's always stood out to us is the UMB mission. And for our listeners, could you describe UMB and its mission? Um, what are some of the words and images that stand out to you? Uh, what are some of the university's points of pride? So, um, as Rhett said earlier, we are um, one of university, one of the state's prominent institutions. We have about 6,700 students. Where we are different is the majority of those students are graduate and professional. We have a very small population of undergraduate students, and most of those students are in the School of Nursing finishing their last two years of their undergrad program. Uh, We have extramural funding that for the last two years has been hanging around 700 million. So there's a lot of energy and a lot of things going on at the university. We also have a biopark 
And it's one of the biggest biotech clusters fueled with the commercialization of new drugs, treatment, and devices, giving us about a thousand scientists and entrepreneurs that are in that space on the biopark working together, creating and collaborating. And so, again, it's just a lot of energy and a great place to work. Our mission is simply to improve the human condition. And when you hear a mission like that, for me, it, it, you just get excited because it's so profound to be able to help, whether it's through counseling battered women, through providing legal counsel for people who are trying to stay in the country, whether it is creating drugs or different treatment processes or pharmaceutical, pro- it's all about improving the human condition. And so I just think it's such an apt mission and it's one that truly energizes me because you're making a difference in the world. Thank you, Don. Yes, thank you. One one other impressive piece of UMB, at least to Dan and I, has certainly been the university's engagement with the local community. While it has this, UMB has this broad international scope, it's also a very locally driven university in terms of making a difference. Might you talk a bit about some of how UMB interacts with the community and how it impacts the community? Oh, it's just part of our 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 cultural fabric. There are several examples. Um, Dr. Perman is now the president or the chancellor of the University System of Maryland, and one of his babies while at UMB was the Cure Scholars Program, and that targets students in the West Baltimore neighborhoods that are grade school level um, through high school. And it introduces them to science and the careers related to science. They do real experiments. And it's not just embracing the students, it's embracing their families and assisting them with whatever challenges they may have. There's a lot of face-to-face intensive time with students. They get to have a white coat ceremony when the year begins, and then they have a graduation ceremony at the end. And it's, again, having a profound impact on their lives because they get to see what they can be. Um, I think the important thing about how UMB interacts with the community is we're not coming in as the savior to the community. We're coming in to be a partner with the community. We're learning as much from them as they're benefiting interacting with us. And so it's really been wonderful to be so geographically close to West Baltimore. We also have our community engagement center that we opened up and it was basically one room and saw 6,000 visits in a very short period of time. And we, we just outgrew the space. So we will be opening up this fall, late summer, early fall, our new community engagement center that will be probably three times the size of our existing one. And we're going to fill it up with programming and space for people from the community to come and, and engage with each other to have blood pressure check, to have childcare services in some respects, it, just things to help have youth be able to learn and exercise and engage with with other people in the community as well as our faculty, staff, and students. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 an awesome. Like I said, I can't say enough about how 
happy I am and how proud I am to be a member of the UMB community. Yep. It comes through loud and clear in your voice. <laughs> yeah. And on that thread, you know, what are some of uh, UMB's top strategic priorities um, and how has the university continued to pursue the, the prior its priorities in the midst of the pandemic? Well, um, our priorities are always going to be research and always going to be community engagement. We have um, a core values initiative that's under the way right now where we've established six primary core values. And while we have been working to embed them throughout the campus community, we want to see how can we make them a deeper part of our our university culture. Um, Right now in the pandemic, one of the priorities that we're really focusing on is helping to get testing out. We have renowned um, scientist Claire Frazier, who's a genome scientist and a microbiologist. She is working with another one of our faculty members to see what they can do in hopes of generating 20 tests, 20 test kits, 20,000 test kits a day. And as we know, the more testing we can do, the more we know about how to protect people and who they should be around and, and asymptomatic people um, will be able to have more testing available to them to prevent hopefully the spread. So we're just working really hard right now in the middle of this pandemic to do whatever we can do to help and improve the human condition. Um, Liz, help remind me what was what was the last part of your question? Well, I, I, it was about the university and how it's continuing to pursue priorities in the midst of a pandemic. I think, you know, I think as you know, universities are looking at how to how to do. I don't want to say business per se, but how to meet mission in, during these times. So maybe you could talk about if those priorities have shifted at all, or how how you're pursuing them and continuing the course. So our missions are research, community engagement, service, and and instruction, and not necessarily in that order. And we are continuing to do all three, even during the pandemic. And one of the things that I truly believe about UMB is that we're going to come out of this even more resilient uh, than going into the pandemic, because we're taking this opportunity It just so happens that it coincides with our strategic planning cycle. We're taking this opportunity as we reimagine um, and reposition ourselves to say, okay, strategically, what else do we want to do? Um, What have we learned from this that would affect how we think about ourselves in the future, how we deliver instruction in the future, how we allow people to work in the future? And I think That's the most important part, being able to keep your mindset in both places here, dealing with the situation, but also looking toward the future so that you don't shortchange your future because you're so focused on what's going on in the current time period. And I think we're we're attempting to do a good job of balancing that. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Don, you mentioned that one of the pillars of UMB is uh, its research. Uh, it's a high-intensity research institution. Uh, 
Can you talk about how the COVID-19 crisis has impacted the university's research activities? Yes. Um, So when we had people work from home and had people leave the campus, right away up front, we identified research that was absolutely positively critical to continue to go on. And so using socially distant um, scenarios and and masks, et cetera, we allowed some labs to continue to stay open. But we probably cut our research back to 10% of what we have been doing. Um, We are in the process of socializing our recovery task force planning framework. And one of the first things that we are focusing on is to, opening the faucet slowly, bring research back to campus. Um, And as one of our first priorities, I think the other thing I should note is new research has been born from the, from this whole pandemic. So we are focusing also on any research that is related to COVID-19. And so there have been new things that we have um, been very careful to prioritize across the campus so that people weren't competing with each other and working together to do that COVID research. So it we, we pilled way back. It sounds like you're repositioning research for the future as restrictions are lifted. I think, um, well, there's so many grants that are just grants and contracts that are in place that we need to finish. Um, but in addition to this, obviously there, it's a disrupt, it is a disruptive event in, in our lives. And a lot of times out of disruption comes innovation. So there's highly likely that there will be new research areas to be looked at. And COVID-19 obviously is the one that people are focused on right now. Thank you. Yes, thanks so much. So on continuing to kind of think through the COVID-19 crisis, since it's this uncertain time is on all of our minds, how has it changed the way you and your colleagues have been doing your work? You talked a little bit about that, but what are some of the lessons that maybe you've learned or that you're learning as you go? I can tell you the days have been longer and more intense. Um, And so just as a survival mechanism, meetings can be a half an hour and be extremely productive. And I think that is one of the, the things that we've learned just from a logistical standpoint to try to get all of the conversations that you need to get in. And the second one, if communication was important before, is even more important now. People are separated. You don't bump into people down the hall to have conversations. The need for communication to keep people's fears down, to let them know what's going on on campus, it, it is the need is just there. So communication, 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 and communicate some more has been a huge Um, not learning lesson, but has been a huge responsibility that has come out of this pandemic and the way we've had to change our operations to do business. So I think those are the, some of the most important things that have, I, 
I, I'll take that back. Another thing, um, many people had not used Teams, go to meeting, WebEx, Zoom, or any of those things. And people have come very proficient at those tools, <laughs> again, out of necessity. Additionally, I have a, a senior person at the university who previously when employees had asked him about teleworking, he kind of like poo-pooed the idea. Uh, he needs to have his eyes on people and make sure they were working. And he, I had to laugh at him because he had to admit, I can't say that anymore because we're working, things are getting done and they're being done well. And so I think we've also learned that we can adapt to different things very quickly when necessary. Right. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Don, can you talk a, um, a little more about how you, how you build viable financial and operational plans during a pandemic like this? Uh, what are what are some of the the biggest challenges, and how have you been addressing them? I think some of the things that you do during normal planning period, you do during the pandemic. You're methodical about how you build your budget. Prioritization does become even more important. Transparency and keeping people involved and knowledgeable about thinking. And just trying to put as many tools in your budget toolbox as you can use to try to absorb the situation. And we're like anybody else. We have fiscal year 20 and what that cost us to change our operation. We have fiscal year 21 and we're anticipating reductions in state appropriation before we get to seeing what other COVID costs we have to incur to get through fiscal year 21. So all of the pressures and all of our, our typical resources, um, they're all being stressed at the same time. And so you can't lose your head. You, you, you have to prioritize and kind of establish maybe some, some philosophies about how you approach the budget. And that's, and you, I guess you have to be open to, so we had previous, we had pretty much put our fiscal year 21 budget to bed. And so yesterday we had a conversation about, okay, what are the things that we had planned to do in fiscal year 21 that we're going to, we're going to delay because of the, the constraints we need to see where we can reduce expenses and we're not walking away from them. We think they're important, but given the situation, we're willing to rethink. And so I think being open to discuss um, and say that there's very little, determine what your sacred cows are and everybody be upfront about what your sacred cows are, call, cows are and then from there prioritize um, what should be in the budget and what shouldn't be in the budget and look for help wherever you can find it. Right. And communication, communication, communication. And communication, communication. Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I didn't answer the question about our biggest challenge. Um, I think the biggest challenge is not knowing what else will come. So there's a lot 
I mean, we know what's happened for fiscal year 21, but I talked about that third, we don't know what COVID will cost us for the remainder of fiscal year 21. And that's the biggest challenge, not knowing what else is coming down the pike. It sounds like in your planning process, you're taking into account those uncertainties. To the best extent we can, but um, when I say coming down the pike, I don't think this financial impact is just fiscal year 21. Mm-hmm. I did fiscal year 22 will definitely be involved. I don't think our state can bounce back that quickly. Um, so how long will we be in this, this flux in terms of one of our major support streams um, being impacted? And a blessing to UMB right now is that we don't have athletics We don't have a large contingency of residence halls or dining programs. I really feel for my colleagues who have those things because you don't, there's, there's a different set of tools that you're going to have to use to address those problems than you do say in the instructional and and the administrative areas, because those are fee for service programs. They, they're tubs that are supposed to sit on their own bottom And if you start the academic year with teaching um, online and you don't have students living in those residence halls, how do you pay your debt service? How do you pay your employees? Um, It's it's that's that's a huge problem that a lot of my colleagues are having to figure out and deal with right now. You've presented some of the challenges and, and, and the opportunities to think I like the the term you used of thinking about innovation and, and using this moment to think differently. What advice would you give to someone who wants to become a college or university business officer? What kinds of professional development would you recommend to, to people who have that interest? I'm assuming that people are who are on track for this position have the technical competencies. And oftentimes it's the other skill sets. And What I would say is that you look for professional development that will help you shore up your weaknesses. So if you're someone that does not like to do public speaking, get in rotary, get in, get in places where you have to speak, force yourself to do it. Because, I mean, obviously in this role, you have to do public speaking, whether it's before a board or before the faculty senate or student government, you, you have to do public speaking. I think um, for those people who don't handle conflict well, find professional development that helps you deal with it. <laughs> There's, <laughs> I don't know that I've talked to a colleague that hasn't had to deal with conflict. So look for the ways to shore up your weaknesses. And then I'd also say uh, make yourself visible on campus. As I've talked to people at the AVP level, this is a wonderful opportunity to shine to we're in the midst of all this craziness. And if you are able to step up and contribute mightily to what we're doing, people will notice. And while there's mentors out there, a lot of people have more time for sponsorship. And when I say sponsorship, I mean being able to look around you in your environment and identify stars. And then when there's opportunities for them, you make sure that people who are in the hiring decision role know about the quality of an individual. 
And so this is a perfect opportunity for people who want to get to this spot to really shine and show people what you can do. So volunteer, ask how you can help, and then do a good job at it. Perfect. Very good advice. So Don, Dan and I really would like to thank you for speaking with us today. We've so enjoyed our conversation. We only wish it was in person, but that will come down the pike. <laughs> it will. <laughs> yeah. And so we wish you and, and certainly the university well. Um, and with that, we're going to hand it back to Rhett. Thank you. I enjoyed talking to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Be well. Thanks to you all again for that conversation. And thank you to the listener for tuning in. We invite you to visit imsearch.com for more information and be sure to tune in for future podcasts and follow Isaacson Miller on our socials, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at Isaacson Miller. Isaacson Miller's podcast content provides general information only and does not constitute recruiting guidance or advice. No representations or warranties are made with respect to the accuracy or completeness of this content. All liability from the use or misuse of Isaacson Miller's content is hereby expressly disclaimed. The content contained in our podcasts should be used only at your own risk.